shirt laced. Oh my god, what the fuck is that? What the fuck is that? Oh shit. So you wanna watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night, the podcast where we put 20 movies up on a board, throw a dart at it, and let the fates decide. Today on the show, we are covering one of the most influential and groundbreaking films of the horror genre. It effectively created its own subgenre of found footage movies, which dominated the horror filmmaking for the better or worse for the subsequent decade plus. We're talking 1999's The Blair Witch Project, directed and written by Daniel Myrick and Eduardo Sanchez, and starring Heather Donahue, Michael C. Williams, and Joshua Leonard. What's going on, Jared? Not much, Drew. How you doing tonight? Good, man. I'm excited to be talking about this movie. This movie has a lot of backstory and a lot of just, you know, talk around it that uh, I think is interesting to cover, so I'm glad we hit it. Yeah, I am too, man, and I'm excited to get into our reactions to the film in general, because the backstory is fascinating and the, the the process of creating it is fascinating, but it'll be fun to discuss also on its own grounds. Is it just a good film or not? You know, mm-hmm. and it kind of reminds me a little bit of our heaven's gate conversation. I mean, complete other end of the spectrum. Interesting. Which is How where, so? Well, I mean, obviously one is a completely micro budget and the other was this never ending ballooning nonsense. But both films have a backstory where it almost surpasses the legacy of the movie itself in a way. But kind of distracts the argument around the movie. Yeah. It's like and 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 I'm excited that we're gonna be getting into this movie's backstory because not everybody knows it, and I'm sure I don't know everything about it. So that'll definitely be something we cover. But whenever we get to these sort of legacy movies where the story of how it was made is part of the discussion it is fun also to be like well let's also distill it and just try to view the movie on its own grounds as well mm-hmm. and just on its own entertainment value does it hold up and i think this will be kind of a fun sort of companion piece to heaven's gate in a way i think you're right but i think that's only half the story with this movie because i think the other half of it is kind of just the cultural reaction to the mm-hmm. movie and totally. you know like it, it's a movie that played with people's expectations in such a way that I think it's like the the background and the movie itself are kind of inseparable. So it's, I don't know, I'm really interested to dig yeah, into this with you. But uh, for sure. first, let's do a little board review here. Sounds um, good. I will give a little rundown of where we sit currently on the board. At number one, we've got You Can Count On Me. Number two, Akiru. Number three, The Right Stuff. Number four, Rio Bravo. Number five, Operation Condor. Number six, Anomalisa. Number seven, Amadeus. Number eight, Pi. Number nine, Days of Heaven. Number 10, The Limey. Number 11, The Hateful Eight. Number 12, The Straight Story. Number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Number 14, The Karate Kid. Number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Number 16, Dirty Harry. Number 17, Tonight's Episode, The Blair Witch Project. Number 18, Waking Life. Number 19, Strange Days. And and number 20, The Terminator. Excited about Blair Witch Project tonight, man. And just to do a little bit of a streaming check here. We mentioned it last week, but for those who didn't listen to it, it's uh, available for free with ads on Tubi and Pluto TV at time of recording, of course. And pay to rent pretty much everywhere else. So, I mean, 
it's a pretty iconic and groundbreaking movie, so it is not going to be hard to find. No, no. And uh, for those who haven't seen it at this point in the show, I think like this is one of those movies that is such a big part of the culture in our lifetimes. I think it's it's just worth a watch on that alone, and it's an hour and twenty minutes. It's just a breeze. Yeah, it, it it's it's a speedy watch, and if you like horror films. Uh, I'm gonna save it. We'll see how I feel about this movie. But man, save oh man, it. it is. Yeah, uh, like you're saying, Drew. You, just even just for the experience of seeing an I- iconic and groundbreaking in a, in a lot of ways movie, it's an important piece of recent cinematic history. Fairly recent. Yeah. If we want a little stat to kind of point out what uh, this movie's impact was, the movie was made for sixty thousand dollars and made two hundred and fifty million at the box office. This movie still to this day has the highest profit to budget ratio of any movie in existence yeah i believe they call that a good return on investment i'm not a i'm not a i actually am a business major but i'm not not really uh but yeah that's a good investment right there there it is how'd this get on the board jared this was one of your selections i was really excited when you put it on because i've seen this movie a few times already but what what is your background with this and how did it get on the board when i was younger I never really cared for horror films and I I always kind of avoided them. So when this movie hit culturally in 99, I mean, I was only 11 years old at the time, so I really wouldn't have been able to see it anyway. But I remember seeing it on TV at like friends houses who had older brothers and stuff. And I would like come in and I remember seeing that image of like the kids the filmmaking students like shooting the shit by the creek, like before things really start going haywire. And I remember just being like, this is just eerie, man. This is eerie. And I'd heard tell of this movie. It was really sweeping the nation around this time. But again, I, I did not like horror films. And even as I got older and grew into being old enough to watch this movie, it was still a movie. I think subconsciously I avoided because I didn't enjoy the feeling of tension. I didn't enjoy the feeling of like having to pull up the covers or plug your ears that horror films really inspired in me at the time. Always have had a weakness for volume, jump scares. So whenever there's horror films where the tension in a scene is building and building and you know there's going to be some sort of scare, my reaction when I was younger was always to plug my ears because that's really what got under my skin and really got after me was the the noise audio component of it. And then as I got older and I got introduced to horror films that really started to fascinate me, uh, I would say two that really, that really changed the landscape for me a little bit would be the thing. When I saw that, I was like, Oh my God, I didn't know like horror films could really be great. And then at the time when the original Saw came out, that was one that really knocked me on my heels. And I was like, holy shit, what a twist. And like, I heard about all like the budgetary things and stuff. So I have grown to like horror films more as I've grown older. Mm -hmm. But there are still a ton of blind spots that I have. And this is just one of the really big ones. And I was like, you know, I've got to see this movie. I've never seen it. It's pretty much a shamer and to some degree. And let's get it on the board. Let's let's find a time, like, if not now, when? That's almost like the subtitle of this show, especially when it's one of these sort of legacy films. It's like, if we're not going to watch it now, when the fuck are we going to get around to it? So let's put it on the board and let's force me to confront this movie. And it's interesting. I think subconsciously this week I was still avoiding it a little bit because I knew it was going to be a really intense 
frightening film. And I think I was still like, oh, I'm going to push it to tomorrow. Not tonight, not tonight, you know? You know, it's fascinating that you have that perspective because I went into it with a very different perspective the first time I watched it. This movie is one of those movies, and I kind of want to talk just generally about the cultural reception of this movie because it's one of these that's like indicative of how people talk about movies and the cycles that these conversations go through. But when I first watched it in college, this movie had already gone through the cycle of initial excitement, pushback with people saying, oh, it's not as good as you think it's going to be. And it had kind of like gotten into this. It was in this part of the cycle for me where most people that I heard talking about it were like, yeah, it's an important movie, but is it a good movie? Eh, it's okay. You know, and and so I kind of came into it with a different perception of of, of like I didn't think it was gonna be scary. And I and and I think like this movie has never really terrified me, but watching it this time, I think I appreciated the the scares of this movie a little bit more. But I guess I, I don't know, what what was your awareness of this in nineteen ninety nine? Because I distinctly remember going to school having you know obviously like we you know you said you were 11 i think i was 10 when this came out and i remember people talking about this movie and i remember seeing trailers for it on tv and i remember it it really fucked with me the idea of like is this real or is this not because it was really confusing for people at the time um you know they they went they had this whole viral marketing scheme it basically established what viral marketing is and like using the internet to get word around like that hadn't happened for a movie before and the way that they approached this this marketing scheme of like basically presenting this as a real thing that happened and they just compiled footage of these kids who died like it made it made it so confusing for people at the time of like you know and and there are stories of like Heather Donahue you know, running into people in real life and them being like, wait, aren't you dead? Like, how are you alive? Or who, what is going on? Like it fucked with people's heads. So like, what was your awareness at the time? Did you have friends that talked about this movie? Were you aware of the argument of like, is it real? Is it not? Like, what was your, your awareness? I mean, I was not aware of that stuff at the time. I think I remember seeing the poster in movie theaters. It's another iconic poster, right? For the sure. Great imagery with that, the, the stick, figure design mm -hmm. in red and like the, the the person's cap but in terms of like the cultural element of it and the way it swept the nation at the time i was still relatively sheltered from that sort of stuff my upbringing was still pretty religious and we didn't really you know in, indulge in horror films really and again i was 11 i don't play my parents kind of keeping me keeping me out of the loop on this one but the really the only memories of the film i had was seeing little snippets of my friend's older brothers seeing parts of it. And again, it really, something about it got in there. Like it's, I think I guess I had never seen, many of us had not seen the idea of a home movie movie. That's well, like found footage us, is what you would call it. But yeah, yeah I mean, this found movie, footage, footage idea. this movie established that as a subgenre. Like it didn't, mm -hmm. a movie like this basically did not exist before this. Yeah. And so it really, it really made an impact. And again, it was not a super frightening moment. Like, it's not like I saw, like, I'm, I'm so scared right now sort of thing. Like, I didn't see a really, 
uh, frightening moment when I caught the clip, but there was something unsettling about it still. And it, 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 it did get under my skin and I remembered it. Well, it kind of, it has that feeling of like you, you were like looking through your friend's VHS collection, saw an unmarked tape, put it in the VCR and like, this is what you saw. And you're like, this is fucking creepy. Yeah. It's really, it was really effective in its creepiness, even in the scenes where nothing like aggressively sinister is happening. Mm-hmm. So then years go by and I think I had heard some chatter about how there was this sort of confusion upon its release about people thinking it was real, other people not thinking it was real. Um, and there was some sort of, I wouldn't say controversy, but there was a discussion about that. And then we got into when we were in high school and you and I were in high school, spoof movies really came back into fashion in yeah. a big way. Like movies like scary movies and things like that, that were doing these sort of silly things. So yeah. it, it grew in a way, almost kind of like uh, I see dead people in the sixth sense. It kind of grew into this scene that was kind of mocked and lampooned a little bit. And like, it was kind of like, you know, again, like the camera on the, I'm so afraid right now was kind of becoming yeah. something that was made fun of a little it bit. It was big in the culture at the time to poke fun at, things that were earnest and like try yeah, and make really them good. not not you know like like try and take the the i don't know like deflate yeah. the balloon a little bit you know yeah they're like let's take them down a peg and make fun of this actually really a really cool moment in a film yeah so yeah all of those things kind of waxed and waned and since i didn't come to it until this week i was really able to see the movie with relatively fresh eyes of like and i i really like this your kind of story with the movie of how you had kind of heard a lot about how it was it kind of took the world by storm but then also had cooled and people were kind of going against it a little bit and being like wow well, wow well, I mean, it's like it's the just juno a marketing effect. gimmick yeah 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 and it's like i was i think i was pretty good at putting that stuff down and being like let's just watch this movie is it effective horror filmmaking and i think it really is i think this is a legitimately a good movie not to spoil my take but i was like this is this is a palm-sweating, intense movie that is really effective and builds dread so well. And I think it honestly deserves a little bit more praise than it gets. I well, think yeah, it's, let's, it's legitimately good. Yeah, go into it. I mean, so, yeah. you know, this really worked for you. Mm-hmm. What is it exactly that worked and where was it connecting with you? By coming to it later, we get the experience of thinking about it like how how was it that this tricked people you know actually another thing we almost talked about in the sixth sense i mean the movie is more about a twist but when we come to it knowing the trick that we get to view it now of like i can see why people thought this was real i can see why it was there was confusion around it so it was kind of fun viewing this movie through that lens but also the way the movie builds tension and plants the seeds so quickly and that some of the decisions they make in terms of how they shoot it and how they went about making the film are all so smart and they all work together so well that I just kind of bought it hook, line and sinker and was really like, this is just a great, a really great piece of filmmaking, I think. And it's a really bold and cool idea. Yeah. And they pulled it off. Like it's just, it just, it, the, the sense of dread that is established in this movie very quickly is so effective. And just as soon as they, I mean, we, we all know where this movie is going. Oh, I should also mention now, I had seen The Last Shot somehow. 
the last scene of the film. I don't know if I oversaw it at a house. You're talking about with Mike staring into the corner? Yeah, Mike in the corner. Like that is, I mean, maybe it was on like some sort of film reel of like iconic horror scenes, but somehow I had seen that. But my memory blurred it, and I thought that you actually saw the witch there. But then I, I remember it's like, no, that's right. It's just the, the guy in the corner. Mm-hmm. So the way it kind of handles this and really I'm, – I'm cribbing from what I heard other people say, but I would just echo and I agree. It really falls in line with that old horror trope of like you don't need to see it for it yeah. to be frightening. The Jaws effect. You know, the, the Jaws effect, exactly. And like this is one of the best examples – of that I've ever seen, like since Jaws, of like, yeah, it's it's to the movie's strength that we never see anything, and that it's we're just kind of assaulted by this unknown thing. It's so much scarier because of that. But again, the way I felt the dread simmer so, like slowly but also aggressively, the the different stories that the townspeople are saying in the interviews, all of those things, they're playing into their weaknesses and turning them into strengths the fact that they have no budget and they have to film these sort of like not great actors in some degree it all worked now, I, I don't mean the principal cast i think they're actually exceptional but i'm talking about like the people the interview subjects of the film sure they're they're awkward on camera and they're a little stagey but that's good because that's how the person would be if a camera was shoved in their face by a film student and they were asked questions about the Blair Witch scenario and well, stuff. Well, and moreover, I think like the whole the driving force of the horror in this movie is disorientation, right? Mm-hmm. And that's on every level of this movie. It's what you said about not being able to see the witch, but it's also this disorienting camera work. It's the the incongruity of the different stories that you're getting from the people in the town. Like, you know, y- y- the basic setup is 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 a witch, but you know, you're hearing stories about a guy who murdered seven kids and like six guys who, or or five men who like were ritualistically killed on this rock. But there's like, there's no, like nothing is tying all these loose ends together. And so you just, you just have this vague sense of like something bad is going to happen. Like just dread throughout the beginning of this movie. It's so interesting to think about when this movie came out, like, what did the horror landscape look like at the time? And it was not this at all. Like, horror at this time was, you know, the waning days of Freddy Krueger and and uh, Jason and, and, you know, Michael Myers. Like, these, these villain-driven horror movies where it's more about just how many kills can we get in and how many tits can yeah. we put on screen to, it's like, to shock. accompany It's about stuff. shock and awe or, like, yeah. something like that. They're, like, trying to just dial it up to 11 in terms of visual gore and like but there was nothing to ground you with the characters there's no like way in emotionally with these things it's purely about you know just abiding by a formula whereas this movie is like we're not going to show you the villain it's going to be all about these people and the human toll of the of this story we're not going to show give you any real look into like what is actually happening here. It's just things happen. It's the experience of being in their shoes in the moment and like seeing these things. Like, you know, you said the thing about not showing the witch. They actually intended to show the witch at one point. So one of the guys on the crew dressed up as, as the Blair witch and the shot, if you remember the scene where they're, they're running away from their tent because they heard things Mm -hmm. and the, the tent was shaking 
-hmm. And at one point, Heather, who's holding the, the handy cam, screams, what was that? And like is screaming, yeah, the like the most guttural horror moment. Oh, it's one that, of the scariest moments of the film. That moment, Mike was supposed to turn his camera to show the witch and he fucked up the shot. And then they, instead of going back to reshoot it, they were like, no, 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 this is actually better that you don't even see it. You like, because it's all about the viscerality of hearing this woman's screams and feeling that, you know, mm -hmm. that's the scary thing. The scary yeah. thing is not seeing a witch. The scary thing is not knowing what the thing is that's chasing them. I want to circle back to you when you talked about the disorienting nature of the movie. Mm -hmm. And you talked about uh, the way it's shot is disorienting. And, you you know, her running out of the, the tent like that and like seeing this thing and making that reaction we're talking about. But we also can't forget in terms of the disorienting nature of the movie, the whole lost in the woods fear and mm. the disorienting nature of being lost in the woods like that the movie... i was terrified of the woods growing up which is why this movie like i think sunk into my brain when i saw the 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 clips that i saw this movie could be scary on its own right if it didn't have the witch sub theme at all and was just like about kids being lost in the woods and turning on each other yeah like that it would be interesting enough on its own and they they play in that space and that fear so well and it's another disorienting aspect of the movie that mm -hmm. i think works so effectively i have been lost in the woods once and it was very very minor it was for like maybe 15 minutes i didn't know where i was and i didn't know how to get back to my car i was on a hike in idaho and i started to feel that panic of just and this is a this is a simple hike by the way just so um, this is not deep in the bush this was like a very mellow state park situation but I did have that reaction of like the sun is going down I don't have food like you know I and I started to feel that panic I started jogging to try to get to where I was going faster and things like that and it was starting to get me very flustered very uh, panicky so I've had that feeling before even just briefly and I think this movie displays that so well and really kind of stokes that fear as well in addition to everything else that's going on with the witch and the symbolism of the hanging stick man and the way they eerily build up the cairns and like all that sort of stuff I, it just works on so many levels I had heard it was the director like running beside them with like all wearing like all white long johns and like a sock over his head. And so her reaction to seeing him was, I mean, she obviously is aware as an actor that this is a staged occurrence, but she doesn't know what she's going to see. So they were really able to get these really genuine things yeah. out of these actors by kind of pretty much setting these elaborate pranks for them and walking them into it. And her her saying, what the fuck is that, is just goosebump rippling every time I hear it. It's really, really frightening and really yeah. effective. No, it works. Yeah, it, I, I bought it hook, line, and sinker. I, I think now is a good time to kind of just talk about how this movie was made. Definitely. Because it's fascinating the way that they did this. I mean, this was like, you know, a low-budget, essentially student film. I mean, they weren't, they weren't in, you know, film school at the time, but... Um, you know, they did this on a bootstrap kind of way of doing it, just raising a small amount of money, getting some, some you know, young actors who are, are good at improv. And essentially what they did was they blocked out 
an outline of how they wanted the things to go and what was going to roughly happen each night. But they, the actors did not know the specifics. So the actors were sent into the woods with a GPS tracker and a, and a path that they were going to go along. And they spent two weeks out in the woods going from place to place. And the actors themselves are filming all of this footage themselves. And they didn't know when things were going to happen or when they weren't. And so, you know, they would be sitting in their tent sleeping and they'd hear, you know, noises in the woods and they would, they would know that that was their cue to get up and start filming. And so they just got to experience this movie in a really, I mean, that it's so cool. So like, they would they would go to from from waypoint to waypoint and every time they got to a spot there would be film canisters there waiting for them and the inside the film canisters were their individual directions so they would you know each get individual individual direction and n- sometimes it would not be matching up so like you know one character would be told one thing and another character was told another and they originally like mike was the one that was going to get pulled out and not josh and at the last minute, they switched it and had Josh get pulled out to, to disorient them further, just playing it again, just, just the disorienting nature of it. Um, all of these things, it's just like, it's such a f- cool organic experiment of like how to capture real emotions and real reactions to things. So I think that's just fascinating. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, did you it's, read up on the, the making of this? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a genius approach. To make a movie like this. That word, as we all know, is played out. Genius. But it's a really brilliant stroke to like be like, hey, let's 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 kind of get these actors in the woods and let's fuck with them and let's film the reactions and kind of build this horror. We've got this horror, horror story structure that we're going to stick to. We know what's going to happen. They don't. And the reactions will be more visceral and more real due to that. Such, such a cool idea. And where I think it really really works is the fatigue that is appears on these actors faces and the exhaustion because literally they were getting fucked with every night like Drew's saying like they would clang rocks together they would wake them up they would startle them they would play like loops of like children laughing and playing and just like which you hear in the movie all of that stuff but yeah yeah and really just like menace and like terrify them and then when they wake up and they have to shoot the next day out of their tent i think they spent one night in a hotel but every other time they were like in the woods kind of like camping for real mm-hmm. like they wake up and they've got just these bags under their eyes that are just there organically because they've been menaced through the evening you mentioned the cairns like the cairns outside of their their tent the three that they find that like signify that they're gonna die the, the filmmakers put those outside of their tent while they were sleeping and didn't tell them that they were going to wake up to that. Like that kind of shit. The, the first time they see the house in the movie is the actual first time they were seeing the house. They didn't mm-hmm. know that was... they. It literally wasn't even in the outline that they were going to go to a house. They just mm-hmm. they stumbled upon this house on the path that they were told to go on. And they had to follow the sounds. Like the direction I read was like, you're going to go all the way up and then all the way down. They didn't know what that meant at all. Mm-hmm. And when they got to the house, they realized that it was there was, you know, the voice of Josh and the like upstairs and they chased that upstairs and then it was playing downstairs and they chased that downstairs. So it's like they're getting vague direction, 
but mm-hmm. everything that you're they're capturing is is essentially real. Mm-hmm. Um, even down, you know, like I read that the you know Mike staring into the corner, which is probably the most iconic image of the movie. Mm-hmm. That was accidental. That was Mike actually hiding from the camera because he wasn't supposed to be in a certain shot. That's and they captured it by it. accident and they went back in reshoots and filmed the the opening uh, in, interview scene where the guy talks about like that that he had the one person fa- the one kid face in the corner while the, he killed the other mm-hmm. one. That was like added just based on an accident. I had heard I had heard a different story in the in the commentary, but What was in the commentary? In full disclosure, I was fast forwarding through the commentary today and just kind of hitting scenes that I really liked and wanted to hear what they had to say about them. Sure. So maybe they mentioned some of this in parts that I breezed over. So I could be incorrect here. But they did make a mention of how um, when Mike first ran downstairs, they like grabbed him and they, they told him to go stand in the corner. And I think they before Heather came down and like did that. So Oh, but, I but, yeah. So maybe you're right. I, no, no, I, I mean, I read that way. in an oral history, and that came mm-hmm. from, uh, or I don't, you know, I don't remember where I read it. But anyway, but either way, it's just an incredibly organic and loose way to make a movie, and it's a great idea. Like it really, it really fucking works, man. It does. Like it's just, it's just cool, and it's just, it's really fucking unsettling, and really, it's just, it's just great. It's really good. I want to go back to the hype machine around this movie and the viral marketing scheme. So I want to first talk about the marketing scheme. So this movie, as I mentioned before, essentially was the first movie marketed on the internet through viral marketing. And the way they did that was they created a website. And one you know, one of the filmmakers, I think it was Eduardo, was um, previously had learned some some web design. So he was the only one on the crew who knew how to do that. And he just put this together kind of on a whim. And it got passed around. But the, the, the basis of the website was, this was real. These are the filmmakers who died. Here are their backstories. Here are the diaries of... of Heather Donahue from like, you know, and they, they showed this like weather, you know, beaten uh, journal and like have pictures of her writing. And I, I, I want to say that the actress, uh, Heather, actually, you know, the real Heather, not the Heather in the movie. Um, I want to say that she actually wrote a lot of this herself. But yeah, they, they document all of her journal entries. Um, there's like backstory on like the the search and rescue thing and like how the footage came into possession of of Heather's mom who then brought it to these filmmakers and they were told to piece it together into a movie you know essentially just building the backstory and the world of this movie and it's so fucking fascinating to think how much they fucked with people's heads by using this cuz no one had ever done this before mm-hmm. it was just Dude, like it was the first of its kind it's so it it still was working on me today. I still was unsure because on the Blu-ray that I rented, they had all these special features about the Blair Witch mythology and stuff. And I'm like watching, I started watching one and it's like a sci-fi documentary about the Blair Witch case from the early nineties. And I was like, wait a minute, is this, is this real? Like, I know that the film is, is not real, but like did three kids really go missing in the early nineties? And then they make a movie about it. And they didn't. So I still, 
I still was questioning it today with all we know about this movie. And they shot that sci-fi documentary as mm-hmm. part of this campaign as like misinformation, which is a word that's obviously used very negatively today and rightly so, but in a cool way when it comes to marketing a movie, a really another great idea of like, let's shoot a sci-fi documentary. Let's put it out there and make it seem like this, whether or not people buy that this is really the footage, let's at least try to get them to bite that it was based off of some form of reality. Can you imagine being at Sundance in 1999 and going to the midnight, the first midnight screening of this movie and just being like, what the fuck did I just watch? Is that a snuff film? Did I just watch Mm -hmm. people die? Like, I can't even imagine how cool it would have been to be in Park City during that. And just like, and could you imagine getting a beer after and just be like, yeah, just like you're saying, what the hell was that? Did you, was that what? And like trying to figure it out with people, like just talking to friends and strangers about it. And like, it must've been like, there must've been so much chatter around it. And another thing is like thinking about how good the marketing was for this movie and why and how it was so effective. I think that's another way that it almost kind of cheapens the legacy of the film anyway, in a way because people view it as like, oh, it was just a scam. Right. They just got away with the scam. It's like, I don't think that's true. Like, I think it's legitimately a good movie on its own terms that happens to have a really smart and inventive marketing campaign behind it. That does not make it a worse, a lesser movie just no. because it's really well marketed. No, but, uh, but you know, I, I think... There are people who unfairly malign the movie because they see that marketing scheme as a manipulation in some way, which I mean, it is technically speaking, but I think when it comes to this kind of thing, like that, that manipulation is fun. It's interesting to me. I think they were the ones who really took it to the nut to the next level. I guess there were other films and other programs that played in this space a little, uh, an example that comes to mind for me anyway, is like Fargo. Fargo at the beginning of the movie, it doesn't take things anywhere near as far as Blair Witch. But Fargo starts with that opening slide that says this is based on a true story. Like, you know, the names and blah, blah, blahs have been changed, but all the accounts are true. And that just was not true. It was complete work of fiction. But the Coens thought that if we just drop that slide at the start of the film, people will be more willing to roll with this and, and believe it. Worked like a charm. And I think that was another another example of that sort of masterstroke. I guess there were some other like kind of, to me anyway, vague movies that sort of played in like, I know this is real. There was some like movie about cannibalism in the 80s that came out. Yeah, Cannibal Holocaust. Yeah, yeah, Cannibal Holocaust that kind of did this. And then one of the most iconic examples, War of the Worlds, I think it was. Well, yeah, I mean, Orson Welles in 1930-something, well before Citizen Kane came out, Um, he did a radio broadcast and he was playing a newscaster that was describing the events of an alien takeover of, of the, the world. And, you know, it it was a, it was a dramatization on radio of war of the worlds, but people didn't know that when it was broadcast. And so people were listening to Orson Welles do this character talking about the world ending and they actually thought that they were being invaded by aliens. (laughs) Yeah, they like ran out of their houses screaming and like looking at the sky and calling the cops and all this stuff. So it has it has happened a few times sure. in like history, but never 
did it really go this far? And it was, it happened well, and so using rarely. modern technology in such a, a clever way. That's, that's what I'm fascinated by is like, you know, it's one thing to make a mockumentary quote unquote. It's another to buy into that world so much that you've created all these multimedia kind of, you know, ways of, of talking about this event. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's so unique to me. And like I said, like it, single-handedly kicked off the the found footage genre in modern times i mean you you know after this movie you get stuff like cloverfield you get stuff like um the fourth kind you get you know like there's there's paranormal a, activity paranormal man. activity you get a million of these things i think i think the fact that there are so many of those after the fact devalued this movie and made people think that it wasn't as as important yeah. as it was and that's yeah. and that's where i was coming to it from the first time i watched it was like this is a bad movie that got elevated because of a clever marketing scheme right. and it's not that at all i want to i want to go back to that a little bit more i actually don't think i asked so you mentioned your first viewing was in college and how you had heard the pendulum swing back against the film to some degree. How was that first viewing for you on your terms? What did you think of the movie then? And has your opinion on it changed on this, like I'm assuming second viewing or later viewing? Oh yeah. I've seen this at least three or four times, but um, the first time I watched it, like I said, was in college. It was the height of my film snobbery. I think I appreciated it and I was like, Oh, that's interesting how they constructed it. But I wasn't, I didn't buy into it as much. And I think I probably just kind of like was watching it in a lazy way. Like I wasn't like fully engaging with it. The time that it fully connected with me was, was two or three viewings. And I watched it with a group, um, you know, with the lights out, like super dark. And I was like, Oh, this works. Like with a good sound system, when you can hear all the clicks and pops in the background and like the children, you know, noises, like I don't even know if I heard all of those things the first time I watched it because I was probably watching on my laptop with like earbuds in, you know, and just like doing other things. So I think like it, it was the first viewing was not I didn't have the best impression of it, but I've grown in appreciation when I when you just like when you factor in the totality of everything that went into this movie, it's, it's impossible to be like, that's a waste of time. It's interesting at a very base level. Yeah. And it's good. Like that we were talking earlier about the dread and the tension and everything. Like I had to take like breaks from this movie. I'd like so pause it. really like, worked on you. It was even super in the effective. morning. Cause you watched that yeah. in like daylight. I watched it with coffee in the morning and I was still like, <laughs> Whew, I had to pause it. Like I need to go to the bathroom. And like you said, I had to step away from it to time to time. And again, like I said, I am susceptible and get nervous around the audio components of films. Mm. So I was able to control how much of that really assaulted me. I can't imagine seeing this in theaters. I actually would really like to yeah. thinking like when you can't escape it, when it's just in your face and you're not in control of the volume and you're not in control of when you could step away for a pee break or whatever, this movie operates on a relentless level of dread that is exhausting and super effective. I just can't knock the movie. It's, it is so, it, it's unsettled to me possibly more than any other horror film has wow. in some ways. I mean, again, I've got a lot of blind spots and it's something I'm hoping to patch up as we progress further in the show and experience more of the genre. But something about, again, being lost in the woods, 
this kind of menacing, supernatural, ritualistic, sacrificial beast is is stalking them. It's just all so creepy and unsettling, and it really, really got under my skin in a super effective way. How do you feel about found footage movies in general? Do you feel like they work on you, or has that been diluted so much at this point that it, it doesn't work? I think it's been diluted. I think it's more the latter. Like I, I remember seeing Cloverfield in theaters when it came out and I enjoyed it but that movie even though it's certainly part of this subgenre like we're saying this whole found footage idea there's no is this real like it's not playing quite in that space because it's so clearly not it's an alien invasion film other ones we've mentioned so far in this conversation are blind spots for me so I don't know how I feel about them and I find that it is sort of a played out idea. I think if I was to see an advertisement, like if I go to the movies tonight and see a preview and it's a found footage movie, I think I'm going to roll my eyes a little bit and be like, oh, come on, don't do that again. Mm -hmm. But the fact that this was really taking, doing it for in many ways the first time, or at least bringing it to light in a big way for the first time, it gives it a huge pass for me. And it's so well done. And it still is so effective at fucking with your head. I think I heard someone in a sort of documentary about this movie. It, I think it was just like a fan of the film who was reacting to seeing it. I think they made such a great point, which is like, based on when we were born and the fact that we have home videos in our lives to various degrees was definitely part of my childhood somewhat. When you're in a movie theater watching a traditional horror film and you have that sort of cinematic look to everything, it's a, there's a little bit of a separation there where you can say there's subconsciously like, yeah, but this is a movie. It's like, you know, it's not real. You can certainly still say this about this. But the fact that so much of it is kind of handled on lo-fi home video recording devices, it kind of penetrates a little deeper, I think, to people of our generation who view that as some sort of like truth telling of like, and it kind of is. So I think it cuts us a little deeper than it might other generations. So anyway, again, I'm cribbing what somebody said, but I completely agree with that point. And I think it really uses that sort of home video look to its advantage in terms of psychologically manipulating us. But I will say in general, I do think despite this movie's successes, the idea of found footage is not something that appeals to me now, even yeah, though I will fair. go to bat for this film and I will defend it if anyone comes after it. But uh, in general, no. How about you? Do, you? do you have a vibe on it? It's interesting you say that because I feel like almost the proliferation of home video footage and the ability for us to just take videos constantly has almost devalued that as mm -hmm. a concept for me. Because mm -hmm. I think the scarcity of like, you know, the time when this movie came out, yes, there were people carrying around camcorders and like videoing stuff, but it wasn't a regular occurrence. There weren't people pulling out their phones during concerts and taking videos oh, yeah. constantly. Totally. So like, I think like there's something even more unsettling because like people aren't capturing footage constantly. The fact that this was captured almost feels like this relic in a different way. Whereas mm -hmm. like, you know, you, you see daily, like on the news, people with their phones taking videos of the horrors of the world. Like that's a, that's just a regular occurrence for us now. So it's like this movie came out in a sweet spot where it was widespread enough 
that you believed that someone would have their their camera here. And obviously the setup of this is that they're filmmakers, so obviously they have cameras. But like nowadays you wouldn't even need the setup of their filmmakers. It could just be kids going off into the woods with their phones. So mm-hmm. it's just it's a different experience. And I I do think that like there's a polish to all the found footage movies that came after this because they're being made in a traditional way that a movie is made where there's a set and there's, you know, dozens of extras and, you know, crew people and versus this where it's like these actors essentially experiencing this thing on their own. It's just, it's just different. And like, this is that lightning in a bottle type movie that Mm -hmm. I almost think it was just like, it, it was futile trying to replicate it ever. And like none of them ever worked as good as this one did. You know, I'm a defender of Cloverfield, but that's more just because of the fun, you know, monster movie aspect. But I'm, you know, I pulled up a list here of just like the best found footage movies and really nothing is sticking out to me as being all that interesting. You know, the rec movies, the VHS movies, like those are, those are interesting. Um, but they're not like, they're not, they, I don't know. There's, there's something about this movie that is just, again, lightning in a bottle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I fully agree. And I like what you said, too, about smartphones today and how everything's recorded. And they were just kind of beaten with it so much, whether for malicious purposes or not. So it's just the way of, the way the world is now that it, it's not as kind of penetrating as something like this, which, again, I do believe it plays on our nostalgia in a, in a negative and effective way of the look of home videos and that graininess because that was something that was a part of my life. But nowadays I see like what my sister is doing with her kids and like, you know, my nephews and stuff and they're, you know, taking pictures and doing stuff from the phone, but it's all got this really clean look to it. So Mm -hmm. everything is almost, almost everything looks cinematic now. So I, I totally agree that this was kind of the right time where we were able to see that sort of roughness and that rawness before the idea of individuals documenting everything about their lives really caught on culturally and overtook things, you know. I kind of wanted to talk about some of the choices they make that I thought were really smart and really broke up the movie. And and it's so easy for it to be and seem monotonous. Like we just had an hour and a half of people running in the woods with shaky cameras, like what the fuck is that? It's such a tightrope it's so easy for that to fail and i think one of the ways they succeed in not allowing that to happen is the transition between black and white footage and color between the two cameras that they establish organically in the i was film. gonna bring that up too yeah they, they have the 16 millimeter i think it was the mm-hmm. black and white like camera camera that josh the dp is shooting with and then they have the director with like the home camcorder that's color and the way they cut between those two cameras of what's going on is really smart and it breaks up the rhythm of the film whenever they feel like they need to and it's justified within the structure of the story it makes complete sense it works along with the found footage idea they have a sound person there so the 16 millimeter film is able to be synced up and like all that sort of stuff I just think it's such a such a good idea to go between black and white and color. Well, and it's not just the visual aspect for me, because if you think about the way that the 
the finale of the movie happens where it's cutting between the 16 mil and the home video footage. I mean, as it does throughout the movie, but in that scene particularly, it's doing a lot of jumping back and forth. But what's fascinating is that the audio is only coming from the handy cam. So like, even though you're in Heather's perspective in the 16 millimeter shots, the black and white stuff, you're still hearing her voice in a distant way. And it's it's playing again into that disorienting nature of everything, where even though you're in her perspective, you're hearing her voice like it's three rooms away. And it's just like, they're using it in a really clever way. I don't even know if that was intentional um, or, or like thought out as like, this is gonna be disorienting, but it works that way. Yeah, or did they find it in the editing process? We're like, oh fuck, let's do that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. E- either either way, it excites me. Whatever, yeah. whether, whether it was by design or a discovery. Yeah. There's so many little details like that. I mean, like, you know, we mentioned the one where, where Mike didn't capture the witch. Like, I don't know. There's just, there's little, little details that, you know, were in some ways probably accidental. But again, it's just the lightning in a bottle. Like, they got this thing. It wasn't intentional. The movie actually wasn't intended to all be from the characters' perspectives. Essentially, the movie was going to be structured as basically like forensic documentarians digging into the footage and that half the movie was going to be from the perspective of these other people who are digging through the footage and you were only getting like clips basically from the footage and they realized in the editing bay that it just worked so much better if you cut all that shit out and you just leave it as like this is what we were able to put together no setup. We're not going to get into the lore of all this stuff. It's all going to be confusing, and that's the point. Yeah, dude, what a great idea. Like, if they had gone down that road of, like, spinal tap, but obviously going for a completely different emotional thing, but the idea of a mockumentary, or whatever the term would be for, like, a fake doc in a in a dramatic or horror genre, it just, it would have, I think, been so much less interesting. I'm so glad they made that choice to trim all that shit away and let's just make it literally what was shot on the ground. And let's let that be the narrative structure of the film. It's so much more disturbing and believable to, that they took that approach. I'm, I'm so glad they did. It's, the movie is so much better for it, I think. Completely, completely agree. As the theme of this conversation is kind of continuing on about dread and things like that, I think one of the most effective tools they have in their tool belt here is... The use of dark and then conversely the use of daylight I think is so well done in this movie where like there are times where we don't see a damn thing. The screen is completely black and we just hear and it's so unsettling and so effective. And then there's all the every time like night begins to fall, you're just like, oh, God, here we go again. Mm -hmm. What is going to what is going to come for them tonight or how is it going to come for them tonight? And then every time they emerged from the tent in the morning, you'll have this like breath of like, oh, thank God, it's daylight again. But what's so cool about the movie being set in the fall and around Halloween time is that we get that really creepy autumn sky, which is like we're kind of around that time of the year as we're approaching the winter solstice where like you could get out, you could, you could leave your house at, uh, one in the afternoon and it already feels like you are not that far away from evening time. Mm-hmm. And it's so like the, the light just drips from the sky in this movie so quickly. And they're like, as even when it's light of day and you, 
we feel like they're not going to be attacked by this witch in daylight, there's always this sense of like all the lights coming in at an angle. They're losing it already. Even it's like one of the first things we're seeing from this day. Like it's like already they're up against the clock and already they're fighting the sun and this beast or what this witch. You well, know, it's just so effective. Well, and just like the revelation of we've been walking for 11 hours and we're back where we started. Like that feels so much more intense when you're like, fuck, it's about to be dark and they it's got almost nowhere. They're, they're in the same den, the same lion's den, so to speak, and they have made no progress. Yeah, it's so... And her breakdown in that scene at the bridge when she's filming it and like, it's just so believable. I think that's the best scene in the movie. And you're talking about where Josh is like saying like, that's your motivation. Like, Oh, that's, yeah, that's, I think that's, I think that's directly after the one I'm talking about. I'm talking about when it's still her point of view, like she still has the camera Oh, and she's trying to like trick herself into believing it's not the same same long. Yeah. Yeah. And then the guy's like, uh, open your eyes, it's the same thing. And she's just like, she has that breakdown, but it's, again, still from her perspective. I just, I'm like, God damn, dude, she's really going for it. She's embracing the idea of this sort of acting, acting experiment. Like, she's really like, all of them are allowing themselves to let this process under their skin and play it straight because they are really, it's a very kind of improv organic idea and approach. And, I really think they all did such a good job with it. Yeah, they definitely did. I wanted to talk a little bit about an idea I had watching this movie this time, which is, you know, the obsession these days with true crime. I feel like in a lot of ways, this movie is a part of true crime becoming the sensation in, in popular culture that it is now. Because going back to, you know, the marketing scheme of this movie, presenting it as true life and that these people actually died, I think there's a morbid fascination in people these days with understanding true human terror and and, and the experience of enduring horrors that are, are in some way grounded in reality. And... I don't know. I just, I think it's fascinating to think about, even though that this movie is playing in a supernatural space, the grounded nature of how they approach it is triggering, I think, the same impulse in people's brains that makes them watch stuff like Making a Murderer or The Staircase or, you know, uh, Serial. Like, it's, it's all playing on the same thing of like, this could happen to you. Like, this, it, all it would take was you going to the wrong place in the woods and you're in this. You know, like, I don't know. What do you think about that? Sort of a cop-out answer to that would be like, well, all horror films play in that space of like, um, of of the morbid fascination space. But I think you're right. This one takes it a step further. Setting it in reality. And, and it's like, well, we're going to pretend it's real. And it really kind of taps into, I think, more what you're saying, sort of the true crime idea of like, this could happen to you. Like, you know, it's almost like a anti-drug campaign but i do think you're right i do think that's one of the draws of like a true crime podcast my understanding i don't know if this is true but it's like uh majority like female listeners it seems like to me and like it's like why i've I've always wondered it's like why would uh someone want to listen about a story about like some woman jogging and getting like abducted and raped and murdered or something like like what is the 
twisted fascination in that. And I think you're right. I think it is that like it could happen to you, but 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 sort of scary thing that it's playing on. Mm-hmm. And well, again, I do think there is something. For talking about that, the gender dynamics of it, I, I generally yeah. think that uh, women inarguably deal with uh, more potential for violence against themselves on a regular basis. For sure. So I think for sure. it's in some ways like deflating that that fear, you know, and like mm-hmm. allowing them to experience it in a way that isn't just this abstract horror. It's something tangible that they can, they can worry about for real. And I mean, mean, look like this movie, I think is playing on some of the similar themes. Originally the Heather character was supposed to be a male character and all the stuff that the gender dynamics of like the men who don't trust her with the map and like, is she, you know, stacking up and like, she's the director of this movie and she's actually, she's having to boss these guys around. There's stuff in the journal entries of like, you know, Heather second guessing herself about how hard to push on things. And like, you know, there's, there's a lot of like male, female dynamics in this movie that I think are, are a part of the same kind of ilk. Yeah. And it's so much better that she's, that she's female because like if, if, if it's just a male aggressive alpha be like, no, guys, we got to go do this. We got to get this. I can't sympathize with a character like that. There's something about. She's when, vulnerable. Yeah, there's something about when, for me, watching a story, when a woman feels the need to project a sort of alpha mentality to rally the troops and get people together. I'm not saying she doesn't have those qualities inherently in the character Heather, but there's something to, to me that's like really heartbreaking when a female character feels the need to push more aggressively in order to gain the respect of her male right. compatriots and her, her male cohorts. And if that kind of over pushing leads to some sort of a downfall, I find that so much more tragic. Well, it sounds like you're ascribing fault to her, which I don't think is fair. Oh yeah. I am totally ascribing fault to her. How so? She, she, I think she really bit off more than she could chew. She really didn't have a proper understanding of the terrain. They never did get to the cemetery. They never did do things. Uh, no, I think the, she's. I think. I think that's a misunderstanding of of what's happening because to me, the the fact that they're lost is part of this the um, the supernatural element of the of the film. Like, oh, you think it is? Like 100%. the witch is messing with them? Oh, oh I never yeah, got yeah, that yeah. vibe. No, 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 no. Like, like th- I think that's the only way to read the part where they've been hiking for 11 hours and they're back at the same spot. My reading, and I think the reading of most people, is that the compass is getting fucked with by this witch. And like Mike's impulse to kick the, the map into the river, at least to me, read as like, that's a psychological break, but it's being triggered by this supernatural oh, element. Like these, these things are not like, I don't think there's any part of the movie that wants you to believe that this is her fault. I think it's, mm, it's, I dis- I disagree. It's with that, people but. that are trying to do this thing and it's beyond their understanding. So they have this hubris and they go into it, but it's not anyone's fault. It's just that they got caught in the wrong place at the yeah. wrong time. Oh, it's certainly the witch's fault. You know what I mean? And it's like, I'm not saying like, uh, but I do think her sort of uh, mocks. Excuse me, that's and, sexist against the witch? Yeah. <laughs> I do think um, her, my reading on it is that her, I was going to say cocksureness, but her <laughs> sort of kind of um, aggression and like really like goal oriented, we are doing this. It's an ingredient in the downfall. 
I don't think it's entirely her fault. I don't think she's uh, unredeemable or anything silly like that. But I do think she does push things too far and they get involved with it. But I do, I do like your reading. I don't necessarily share it, but I think it's cool. The fact that it's the witch. Cause I, I it's like the Bermuda triangle the, kind of thing. They're just, they're stuck in this, this, this loop. I totally think that's valid. I, I didn't see it that way. And I like that you took it that way. Cause I was going to ask you like in the sort of like rounding the corner bullet points segment of the show, I was going to ask you like, do we buy that he kicked the map into the river? Like, do we buy that? But you're right. If you view it, if you view it as like, well, they're, I mean, first of all, they're exhausted, they're tired, they're losing their sanity in general. But I kind of like this additional layer you're adding to it of like, no, they're getting, they're getting fucked with on a supernatural level and, and making decisions. And it also makes them returning to the log make more sense. Well, not to say that you're wrong, but you're wrong mm-hmm. as far as the log part. And I, and I will say why, because if if we're just speaking logically, if they are yeah. following a compass and they are staying due south the whole time, it's literally impossible for them to get back to that spot. Yeah, no, no, I think that's true. So the only yeah, the only explanation is a supernatural thing happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think um, yeah. Oh man, that's just even creepier. I di- I didn't catch that in the viewing today, and I think you're right. Well, I and again, and and I think there. I think again, like rewatch it with that in mind because the things that I think you're, you're putting, you're putting at the feet of Heather, not entirely wrong. I mean, she definitely is like gung ho about this thing and is maybe naive in the way that she's approaching it. I, I, I agree with you there, but in terms of like the fact that they are looking at this map and their car should be right there and they can't get to it. I think watch it with that in mind as being a supernatural thing, because I, again, like, I don't think it's anything she's doing. I think I think if you read it with the thought of like, no, she actually does know how to read maps. And if if this were abiding by the laws of nature, they would be at the car right now, but it's not. And that's why it doesn't make sense. And that's why she keeps saying, we should only be two hours away. Why are we not getting there? Yeah, see, I thought all that two hours away stuff was just her being overconfident and not wanting to display weakness. Well, again, I think I do. That's what the characters are. That's what the characters believe about her. That's what Mike believes. That's why he's confronting her about it. But I don't think that's what's happening. But she also claims that in her sort of self diary, the very famous shot of her apology. I do think there is some truth into what she's saying there and confessing to. So I think, I think it might be like many things on this show, sort of a combination of factors. I do think she pushes a little too hard and is just two hours away, two hours away. But then I also agree with you that I think there is some sort of supernatural thing going on, certainly later in the film that, that no reasonable person could escape from. So it's like, it's not, then it's not her fault. Once they return to the log, that from that moment and beyond it's like it's not her doing that leads to this for sure for sure no and I, I think in my mind the supernatural stuff kicks off from the moment that josh accidentally knocks over the one cairn that's that's him disrupting the you know whatever ritual had been placed on those rocks and that's kicking off the supernatural. and and from that point forward that's when they can never get back on track and it's a mm-hmm. downward spiral from there yeah god it is so creepy isn't it it's so fucking creepy and it is it just feels completely inescapable like it's such an effective fucking movie dude it really is um i think i think there's more going on in this movie than people 
traditionally give it credit for and deserves a revisit for anyone who was like, eh, that was okay. You know, I, I think, I think it's, it's one of those movies that just like, there's a reason that it's important and I'm glad we got to cover it on the show because I think like, it's just so fascinating to think about how this movie came into existence, what its impact was, and then setting all that aside, just watching it as a movie and being like, this is really fucking effective. Like it's all of those things at one time. Dude, super effective to use a Pokemon term. It's super (laughs) effective. It really is like, and all of that stuff that we've talked about in this conversation, the backstory of the marketing campaign and how they actually went about throwing their actors into the woods and scaring the shit out of them with them not really knowing what was going on. All of that shit is fascinating. But at the end of the day, the most important things that, in my opinion, a really cool movie came out of it, a really great horror film. And if anyone is into horror, gotten this far into it, I'm sure everyone's aware of this movie. But if you haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend it. I think it is, again, for me, one of the most effective, startling and dis- and disheartening and scary films I've ever seen. And I think it's just really good. Really, really good. Go into it with open eyes. Try and embrace this thing as what it is. Mm-hmm. And don't try not to watch with a skeptical eye. Because I, look, it is a low-budget film. If you are looking for the seams in this movie, I think they do exist in terms of like, oh, that's a non-actor. Oh, that's, this is weird. Like, that doesn't come across. To, like, I, I don't know. They, I think there are elements of the movie that could be read as amateur but if you just if you try and embrace the movie for what it is and 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 take in all this context of like you know how it was made and who made it and why and you know just like take in the totality of it and i think it's just such a rich viewing experience dude completely agree completely agree and again some of those amateurish things they totally fit with what the what the film is being framed as like the fact that it's they're a stupid loose, kids, stupid kids doing a documentary and they're interviewing townsfolk who are uncomfortable being on camera. The one scene I do see where the, the, the lack of comfort doesn't seem quite right is the two people fishing. Yeah, that's the only that's the only interview bit that I'm like, this feels like actors kind of not really getting it right, but not really getting the bad part of it right either, if that makes sense. They're like two in the middle. They should either be better than they are or they should be worse on camera. But every other every other townsperson that's interviewed, I buy. You know what's fascinating? Speaking of the townspeople, the woman with her daughter that she, she's carrying and the daughter's freaking out, like trying to get her to stop talking. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they were the filmmakers were in some diner in that town. And they were trying to interview people in the diner just to like get some people on film. And no one was willing to go up to them. And the woman that they interview in that scene, she was a teacher. She was very empathetic. And she saw these kids trying to make this movie. And she was like, oh, I'm going to help them out. And so she she improvised that whole bit. And the fact that the kid is like trying to get her to shut up was apparently like the kid just was very anxious, she said in an interview. And like that, you know, that was her daughter just being like, no, 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 we need to like, please, anything but what we're doing right now. But in the moment, in the context of the movie, it's so effective. Like, cause you feel like there's some supernatural thing being channeled through this kid being like, please don't tell this story. This is freaking me out. Like, I can't think about this. And like, I don't know, man, like the fact that that was just off the cuff and from just a person they ran into, apparently that woman 
just thought that was like a student film and like had no idea how big it was going to be until people uh, like her friends started calling her being like, do you realize your face was just on good morning America? Holy <laughs> shit, dude. That is so cool. She fucking kills it in that scene. Yeah. How about, how about as the scene ends and she's talking to her baby and she's like, mommy's just telling a scary story, but it's not true. And then she turns to the camera and lifts that. It is true. And Nailed then like, it. they also cut away from that at the perfect moment, yeah. by the way, that, the great editing choice when they choose to leave that, but she just fucking grand slam. It's incredible. From a non-actor just showing up and also playing the thing with her kid real. She's not f- arguing with like, no, don't do that. Mommy's she trying to shoot a scene character. in a movie right now. Yeah, she stays in character and rolls with what her kid is doing and just fucking kills it. Well, any other final points you want to make before we wrap up here? Yeah, I, I like, I didn't know what you had said about how they added that guy's interview where he mentioned facing the corner. Like that. Just well, really... which again, I could be wrong on. I read that. No, no, I but... think I, I buy it because it's like because in the commentary, I remember they said like, there it is right there. There's the ending of the movie explained right there. So they I think the in the commentary, they're acknowledging that there is some confusion about the ending, what it means. But like they're kind of shouting out the commentary like that really that scene, that interview bit with that guy and the people facing the walls kind of explains what's going on with Mike at the end of that scene. So like. That was such a smart move to add that in. And we've mentioned it a lot throughout this conversation, but I really just want to say it again. Like all of the performances are so believable to me. And I think every one of the big three did a really great job. And I particularly loved how the dynamics between the three shift and move around. Like mm-hmm. early on, Mike is the asshole and Josh is the one trying to keep the peace a little bit. And Heather's the one pushing and, you know, different kind of combinations of things but everyone kind of takes a back seat and and also everyone has a turn as being the asshole the one who's falling apart the one who's pushing the most the one who's like and it just all it all seems so believable to me that like now he's on her now she's on him now he's on him it's all like i just buy it it seems really realistic especially as things start to spiral in terms of just the getting lost point I just really like how they how they mess with those combinations of characters and their tension points. It really works. I love the ebb and flow of that, like you're saying. Another thing that I really appreciate about this movie and kind of my wrap-up point is I love that this movie communicates the horror of the event without needing to be grisly violent, you know? It's the terror is real and... They communicate, I mean, obviously you have the scene where she opens the the flannel shirt and it's got, you know, the tongue and the tooth and all that stuff in there, which is fucked up in itself. But, you know, you don't see, you don't see Heather getting brutalized in the basement. You don't see, you know, whatever happens after that point. It's just done. It doesn't linger on these things. It, it, the implication of the violence is more terrifying than showing the violence. A hundred percent. And it's just, again, we've all seen slasher films and whatever, and they can be great, and they're, they're a certain type of horror. I'm not knocking them. But what is unseen and what is left to your imagination is often so much scarier. And this movie really plays so well in that space. And you mentioned the scene of the tooth and the blood and the shirt from Josh that, that Heather finds. Like, another shout-out to her in that scene. She's incredible. When she goes to the stream to wash her hands, and we just 
hear her panicking and we hear her kind of trying to not let Mike know what's happened. And like, it's just a really good performance of just her, like again, washing those hands and kind of freaking out. Two last things before we wrap it up. I know the movie's only 80 minutes and we've been praising it a lot and it deserves that praise. Do you think it would be better if there was one less night? I feel like there might be one. I don't know. My, I, I, ha, I, don't, I don't know if I agree with this thought yet. I, it, the thought occurred to me. I was like, maybe, maybe not. But there, were a, there was, I think, like one too many nights where they woke up to a, not a significant amount of change in the situation. So it, it might be imperative. And if we pulled a single, if we pulled a night from this movie and made it a you know seventy-two minute film, the whole thing might collapse. So it might be like a load-bearing night in a way. But I was wondering, is like, does it drag one night too many, or is it is it right? I just didn't know if you had a thought. It on might that. be. Um, I think that really is just something that you can chalk up to the low-budget nature of the movie. I think they just kind of they had only so many things that they could do to freak you out in that scenario. It might have to do also with the way that they intended on this movie not being only from their perspective. And then when they made the decision to go to that, they might have had less options of like things to to vary it up with. So, you know, I I think maybe that's just a consequence of how the movie was produced rather than a a problem with the movie necessarily. But I mean, I I understand the complaint. And look, like, I'm not going to say that this is like, the best horror movie I've ever seen. It's not, it, you know, it is, it is in a lot of ways, like I said, like low budget independent production, just they're doing things on, on with what they can. Um, but I also think if you shorten this movie anymore, it almost feels just like an episode of TV, you know? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I mean, it's already 80 minutes to take out 10 minutes is probably too much. And 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 it's not a, and I, and and it might, we might need it anyway. If you just set runtime aside, it might be important for the vibe of the film well, yeah. and the establishment of tension to spend that time. It might I be like necessary. The, I like the monotony and the repetition mm-hmm. of some of that stuff because that, again, like like you're saying, like that is what would wear you down and just make mm-hmm. you like on edge constantly as if that yeah. kept happening. Last few shout-outs for me. Lo- uh, the, I can't believe... The handprints in the house are so creepy. My God, did they do a great job decorating that house and just making it creepy as fuck. And then I really liked how, in a really smart way, through the structure of the film, they explained why she continues filming and why they continue filming. Because it's so easy to have that question of, like, why the fuck? Like, their their lives are in peril like they're lost, they're being stalked, like all this crazy shit this is going on. Why were they t- why are they taking the time to to film this and document it? And they have that great scene you referenced that is probably your favorite scene in the movie. It might be mine too when she has that breakdown and Josh has that camera in her face. That really explains it enough for me. Where I'm like, "Oh, it makes sense. Like this is this is all she has and it's her separation from it's her last remaining separation from the true terror of what's well, going on. And yeah. it's still, it's like, it like diminishes it by like 5% or something. So it's a crutch. And it the movie just explains it in a way that is organic. It makes sense. 
and it justifies what they record from then on and before. It's like now, now it makes sense to me. There's that scene, and then there's also the scene where Mike is holding the camera for a change, and Mike says something to the effect of, "I see why you look through this all the time because it's things are not quite reality." Yes, dude. Great, great call. Like that is another one that it really it justifies everything they do in terms of why they keep filming. And I think that was a really smart addition, but, for sure. but that, that was it for my kind of like last notes and a really dope movie that I'm glad we watched. Are there any, you wanted to give shout outs to before we kind of round into the next, the next flick? No, I don't have more shout outs for the movie, but the last thing I'll say about it is if you want to see what the viral marketing campaign for this movie was, you can actually still go look at this old website and and read through these journals and look at the pictures and stuff. Mm. There's some elements of it that don't work because of the update of like how websites work these days, not using flash anymore. But, um, but you can still see a lot of it. it it's uh, if you Google Blair, Witch project website, you can definitely find a link to it. Um, and I highly recommend you do because it is a piece of, marketing and film history uh in a really cool way and it's i think it contributes to the world that is in this movie and like you just you understand everything going on with the characters that much more so highly recommend people check that out that's cool that's just cool i do have sorry one last thing maybe we just drop it in before (laughs) we'll just drop it in before really also doug the the 16 by 9 ratio it makes it makes the aspect ratio that the movie shot in makes sense for what this whole found footage idea, home camp quarters and things like that. 16 by 9 and, is widescreen format. Oh, sorry. What is the uh, 14 by... But I don't think that one? that's what it's shot in. I don't think it's shot in uh, square The one where you, get, where you get bo- we get bars on the, the sides. Yeah, I but is it that. shot that way? I don't think it is. That's how I viewed it on the Blu-ray. And every time I've put a Blu-ray in this, you, this player you sent to me, it automatically resizes it to what it's supposed to be. Um, and I I'm think, gonna look at my iTunes version right now while we're on the yeah. record because I, I'm maybe I'm just but streaming going crazy. But I doubt streaming because I think they automatically no no no, no. They, they, they would never adjust the aspect ratio unless that's the intention of the filmmaker. Uh, at least on iTunes, no, it's it's widescreen format. In, oh, uh, weird. On here, yeah. I viewed it in I viewed it with bars on the side, and I loved it because I thought it added to the claustrophobia. And it made sense. It must have been the, the, did you get a DVD or was it a Blu-ray? Blu-ray. Weird. I wonder what the original aspect ratio was then. I don't even know. Let's check real quick. I'm going to Google. I know you just checked. I mean, IMDB lists it. So let me, I've got the IMDB right here. Oh, four three is the is the square format. So yeah, no, you're right. That's what it was. So iTunes is fucking me up here. Unbelievable. So you saw it on, that's crazy. All right. That's so fucking weird to me. Why would they do that, dude? That's so dumb. I'm so glad I saw it in, in, with the frames because it again, when you get the four by three, that's the ratio I was thinking of. Four by three is the one where like when we were kids, that's what our TV was, and that's what home camcorder shot in was four three. So you have the bars along the side of the screen. That explains why it's not a cinematic look and it's claustrophobic. It, it has a tight feeling. And there is a movie that I'm really hoping that Drew puts on. It's one that he might someday that plays in the similar idea of using this frame for its claustrophobic nature. So I thought that was a dope choice. And be careful of your streaming services out there, people. 
Look Sometimes they might change. Yeah, Drew's Drew has turned his computer around and is playing his. Was you said that was Apple Drew? Yeah, this Apple is TV. iTunes. Yeah, iTunes, and they have it in like widescreen cinematic. Disrespecting the filmmakers. Oof. Unreal. And now it also the it it gives you no barrier to the camera shake, which is a bit of a bummer. When you have those bars on the side, it kind of cools it down a little bit. I bet. Yeah. No, that's yeah. that's really interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. Okay. Mm. Well. I think that's a great way to finish out the episode. Perfect. Here perfect. I was thinking you were stomping all over my perfect wrap up, and then yeah. you get, you come up with a more perfect yeah. one. So we got a go. we got a perfect little uh, little cherry man. There but it yeah, is. That's it for me on Blair Witch, dude. That's it for me as well. You ready to put something else on the board? I think it's your week there, dude. I am. I am. I'm going to honor my friend Kendrick's request. Okay. I don't know anything about this. Have you seen the movie Titan? I believe it's pronounced Titan, but okay, no, I have not. Okay, it's Titan. Okay, have, do, are you aware of it though? Very aware of it. Yeah, I mean it's okay. um, Julia de Cournot, who is a, a French filmmaker, and she did another horror movie that um, I, I mean to check out called Raw. And uh, yeah, no, I heard great things about it. I, I'd be down to check it out. It's it's very recent movie. Yeah, let's. Uh... I think it's a good one to get on the board. I mean, it does look it's just based on the genre. They say it's a thriller slash horror. And it's like, oh, my God, another horror. We've been doing a lot of those. But I do like or that it's was an organic recommendation from a from someone whose movie tastes I really agree with. He's got Kendrick's got great tastes and he he really recommended it highly. So I'm thinking, like, let's do it. So the board as it sits right now, at number one, we've got You Can Count On Me, number two, Akiru, number three, The Right Stuff, number four, Rio Bravo, number five, Operation Condor, number six, Anomalisa, number seven, Amadeus, number eight, Pi, number nine, Days of Heaven, number 10, The Limey, number 11, The Hateful Eight, number 12, The Straight Story, number 13, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, number 14, The Karate Kid, number 15, The Friends of Eddie Coyle, number 16, Dirty Harry, number 17, Newly Added, Titan, number 18, Waking Life, number 19 strange days and number 20 the terminator the terminator let's go throw that dart my friend love it dude let's see what we get the dart has spoken what's it got for us very close in number but very far away on the board is number 18 18 is Waking Life. Waking Life. Yeah, I'm going to have to check okay. with uh, with Mike the Stir O'Donnell, see if he wants to come on for that episode. Dude, that would be cool, man. I'd love to to meet him and have him on the show. That would be awesome. I hope he can. Hell yeah. It. Streaming check shows that Waking Life is currently available on HBO Max, free with subscription, and then pay to rent in a bunch of other places. Usual suspects. So... Excited to get into Richard Linklater. We've never covered one of his movies on this show before, and looking forward to talking about this movie with you next week, dude. Also one neither of us has seen, right? Neither, but we're both big Richard Linklater fans, so this will be fun to to knock another one of his off. Love it, dude. Love it. Awesome. That's going to do it then for our episode on The Blair Witch Project. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Please remember to rate, review, or give us a follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. If you want to keep in touch or give us a recommendation, drop us a line at dartboardmovienight at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at dartboardmovienight. Artwork for the show is created by Veronica Roman, and all of our music is by Eric Williams. Play us out, Eric. 
Sorry, Mark. Later.